Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark and joining me on today's episode is Chris Caraba, the lead singer from the amazing band Dashboard Confessional. This is a huge interview and during his UK tour when he only played a few dates I was lucky enough to get some time with him and honestly it's one of my favourite interviews to date. I really do rate this guy as a music pioneer, someone that I've listened to now for 20 years. I remember growing up and being a huge fan of Dashboard Confessional, I've been lucky enough to see them back in the day and they're still going as strong now. This guy's an absolute genius and I really really can't wait to get to the interview. But you do know the score by now. I like to touch base and talk about the last episode and I was joined by Mary Sear, a good personal friend of Jeff Buckley and his official photographer. This interview is one of my most downloaded to date. I've seen so many people on the Facebook group for Jeff Buckley and the fan groups all talking about this interview and Mary was absolutely thrilled with it too. I read all the comments, I replied to all the tweets, all the Facebook comments, all the Instagram comments and all the emails. And the best thing is I shared them all with Mary and she was very touched by each and every one of them. But let's get back to today's episode. It's a huge one. Most people in the world have listened to Dashboard's Confessional. If you haven't, well honestly, stop now, go and check them out, especially their MTV Unplugged set. And yes, we do talk about that on today's interview. But let's get straight to it. Here it is. Here's me and Chris Caraber talking all things music so chris thanks for joining me today on the mark and me podcast thanks mark it's great to visit with you today so what i wanted to do for the listeners out there uh, is take it right back to the start when you were growing up and i want to know what were those sort of early albums that you listened to that helped shape the kind of taste of music you have now it's such a strange uh, thing to look back on the, the fact that the, the music that went on in my household was so eclectic it was kind of a a predictor of how my taste would be forever, um, very um, broad, um, and I think that's because it was a it was a time of, of a lot of like musical genres clashing in the uh, you know mid late eighties early nineties. Um, but I remember you know listening to uh, you know you start with what your parent what, what your mother listens to. In my case is just just my mom, you know. Yeah, and uh, and. And she listened to a lot of uh, Fleetwood Mac and Bruce Springsteen. She listened to Tom Petty a lot. She's um, and she was really into Paul Simon. And I those 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 bands, those musicians, and uh, uh, really had an effect on, on on my outlook on melody um, and adherence to uh, quality lyricism, or as best as I can make it. Um, and then over time, you know, you're, you're you start to, to venture out in, on your own and out from the kind of shade of your of your parents' tastes. I guess my brother was into metal. My older brother, yeah. So we got super into Metallica and Anthrax and uh, Sepultura, and then at the same time, I was getting really, really heavily into hip hop. There's a lot going on there, um, and you think that like your mum gave you the best foundations ever with stuff like Fleetwood Mac and Tom Petty. It doesn't get much better than that for foundations, but then you've got this whole metal side, so you appreciate the guitar, the drums, the the musicianship behind it, and then you, and then you've got hip hop. So you must have been like all over the place, all over the place. And so it's amazing how that led me to just when I discovered punk rock. I mean, that can resonate with you for different reasons, but. You know, punk rock started for me largely with Descendants. Yeah. And Descendants, to me, 
they're heavily steeped in melody. The lyricism, the quality of lyricism is incredible. The syncopation of the music of the of the band playing and the polyrhythms going on. It's it's pretty high minded for for punk rock, I guess. It's interesting because you know the the descent of existence predates my discovery of them. I certainly even started and when I was just a boy, you know. Yeah. Uh, but when I discovered them, it was after being steeped in the things we just talked about. So they were they were like this incredible eureka moment where it was like oh you can have all these things you can be parts of the beach boys and parts of fleetwood mac and it can be you know uh part hip-hop and you can be part i mean i don't think these are like largely evident unless you grew up listening to those things but i hear all that stuff in the descendants they were one of the first bands that i um that i listened to that was like i've got to rethink everything and i put all those other bands that i've been exposed to on the back burner and, and and just delved headlong into punk rock and post-punk and post-hardcore from ranging from Descendants all the way to Fugazi and everything in between. So obviously that's quite a complete different route that you took on your own, but obviously it was shaped by the people around you. But then do you remember the kind of first sort of record you went out and bought for yourself where you were like, was it stuff like Refused and bands like that and Offspring and Weezer and all those sorts of bands or were you more into the hardcore sort of stuff? Well, the very first record I bought for myself, I mean, I was like seven. Wow. Or something like that. And I, I walked to the record store um, in the city I lived in. I bought um, the Purple Rain 7-inch. Oh, nice. Yeah, I have a, I have a vivid memory of them. Um, you know what? What's escaped this memory is the record I intended to buy. But I have this very vivid memory of, of going to the record store to buy a record. I, I decided that you know, I was going to buy this record. I, I skateboarded over to this record store. I was I was adamant I was going to get this record. I don't know what it was. I don't know why I was so hell bent on this record. And the and the clerk at the record store said, "You don't want this record. You want this other record." And the record that <clears throat> he suggested was Fugazi, thirteen songs. And he was right. That was the record I needed. I'm, and I'm so glad I bought it. But one strange, one strange, really, really strange part of that story is that record clerk uh, is, is Marilyn Manson. No way. Yeah. I was about to say, I wish you could go back and find that guy and shake his hand and say, thank you very much for changing my <laughs> choice on that day, but you've obviously had the chance to do that. I haven't, I haven't, uh, I haven't actually talked to him probably since. I've never uh, really run across him again. Um, I, I, I wouldn't portray him as a, somebody I know well, but he was the coolest dude I'd ever seen in my life. That's awesome. He lo- he was, even before he was the Marilyn Manson that would become world famous, he looked like the Marilyn Manson that would become world famous. That's incredible. Obviously, we've talked about the records you went out there and bought and the important music that shaped your music taste, but what was one of the first live bands you went to see? Because it's so much different than record, isn't it, to go into one of your first ever gigs and seeing just how it works on a on a stage and all the crowd and the buzz and the feel you get well i saw a couple of bands coming up you know like where my brother would take me to this show or that show aerosmith that kind of thing you know like bands that he my my stepbrother and my older stepbrother was 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 into and i was impressed you know but it was it was like um as great as it was uh someone's like going to a performance in las vegas or something i appreciated it but it didn't move me 
the way I would come to know live music could move you. Just be like we it must it must have been the same year that Green Day would go on to sign to a major label. I saw them uh, down in Miami at a place that probably held 300 people. That's a pretty incredible band to see so early on yeah. in your show-going experience. And that band that I saw is the same band that stands up there and plays these football stadiums. It didn't, it didn't matter that there was only a couple few hundred people at that. If there might, have, might as well have been 30,000, 60,000 people there the way that they, were, they played and the energy they put into it and the prowess that they had and the sheer raw um, power and the emotionality that they were pouring in. And there was, you know, they were really young then and I was young and I was like, it made me think like, this can be done. You know, this it wasn't like some adults playing music. I was a kid and they seemed like kids. Yeah. And I was like, this could, this could be done. And I was a long way from figuring out how I could see to it that I could do it too. But that was besides just being mesmerized and having been lucky enough to see them at several stages of their early career, I did have an, it was, it was a bit of an awakening for me that, that this is possible. If, if these kids could do it, uh, I could, didn't know if I could do it, but I certainly could try. So is this the sort of mindset then that kind of got you into the point of wanting to get a guitar, play in bands, learn to sing and be a front man? I never wanted to be a front man and I never wanted to sing. Wow. <laughs> but I wanted to, pl- I wanted to play guitar and I wanted to be in a band. Yeah. And, uh, and I was, I was in many bands. And I was in uh, every kind of hardcore, every kind of punk rock band that you can think of, uh, I guess, excluding ska. And not that I wouldn't have been in a ska band, but there wasn't one to join. But I was in um, hardcore bands, post-hardcore bands, uh, punk rock bands, pop pop punk bands, thrash bands. Um, I played in a lot of bands at once. I had the ability to to learn, even though I'm self-taught and I really didn't, for a long time understand anything about music theory or, or why songs went a certain way. Um, I could learn, I could learn songs really fast and I could learn a whole, like a whole band's catalog worth of songs really fast. Now, to be completely fair, most of these bands only had four songs or something. Yeah. Um, but I didn't want to, but I did want to write. I had, I always felt like I had something something to say and um and honestly that's how i learned to play guitar was just kind of making up chord progressions um or uh, melodic parts in the in the chords and and of course then i would start to in the in the in, only in solitude and privacy complete privacy i would sing um and write some lyrics and and then i would i would bring them to whoever the singer was in the band and uh, say can you make this better and be the, and sing this and and um and that went on for some time where i was in bands and i would be like the not the first or second or third choice for songwriter but i'd be in there somewhere and i'd get a song every now and again until it got a little bit better and a little bit better and um and then eventually I was the guy that was like writing all the music and all the vocals for everybody to play. And, um, 
one of the other bandmates say, this is kind of ridiculous that you won't sing these songs. You're singing them to us to show us how to sing these songs. And, and, I, and I said, you know, well, I'm not, I'm not a good singer. And I remember Dan Bonebreak, who was going to go on to be the first dashboard, uh, bass player of Dashboard, said to me, when I said, you know, I, I'm not a very good singer, you know, he goes, well, you're not ever going to be if you keep letting other people sing your parts instead of you. Nice. I think I was pressed into that part of it a little bit and I'm um, grateful that my friends knew better than me and understood for certain that um, even though, that, I guess they saw something in, something, you know, I guess they saw the difference between the person that would sing the song I'd shown them yeah, and me showing them what to sing. Uh, they They heard a connection to the lyric or the song or both um, that I guess I couldn't transfer to somebody else, but I didn't see that that way. So, so, but thankfully since they did and they pushed me and, um, pressed me, eventually I, I, I had to, I kind of, I just kind of had to suck it up and, and go for it. I didn't want to be the guy that was, well, you just, you didn't, you didn't want to wimp out, you know, but I was terrified and I have to be honest with you, Mark, I continue, I continue to have incredible stage fright, you know, um, it's not dissimilar from that feeling of, of like, I, I'll never sing. I never want to, I'll never, I was certain of this at the time. I'll never sing in front of anyone ever. Yeah. And you know, when I go on, before I go on stage tonight, I'll say to myself, oh my God, I gotta sing in front of people. It's terrifying. Even 20 years later, you still got the same feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Until I'm there. Until I'm up there. Yeah. And then it's, um, once a few notes come out, you just surrender. And you rec- you know, I, I accept that I have a, that, that there are people that like my voice and people that don't like my voice. And sometimes I like my voice and I, sometimes I don't like my voice and I just don't, and I don't, when I say voice, I don't just mean my, my vocal voice. I mean, you know, my point of view as well. Yeah. Um, but I think it's okay. You know, that took a long time to, to come to grips with, you know, I think you're thought, I think you're taught to think that you're supposed to get everybody to like you, but there's some blandness to that. If you're polarizing, that means maybe, maybe there won't ever, maybe there will be people that, less people that like you, but more people that, you know, and more people that hate, but also love you. I don't mean me, the person, I mean the thing that I'm trying to do. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I still carry this this stage fright, but I I've heard other people say this, and I think it's true. So I'll echo it. Uh, I think once that that stage fright or that nervousness once that goes away, I don't know. I I don't know that there's. I think there's probably potency lost. Yeah. Um. And at that point, it begs the question: What am I? What am I doing up here? So it's good that it's 20 years later and you aren't asking that question. I like the fact that you're still getting those nerves. You're still going up there, getting ready and having those butterflies and that kind of, oh my God, I've got to do this. But hey, if you keep on doing that, it's surely the right way. You know, another thing I do is um, I, I, allow, I, let, I, allow, I allow the fear to be slightly empowering. Figure I'm scared anyway. Yeah. So if, I, if somebody calls out a song I haven't done in 
well, three years is my mental max. I say, if I've done it in the last three years, it's got to live in there somewhere. And if somebody calls out that song, I'll, I can't promise you I'll get it right, but I can promise you I'll give it a shot. One of the first performances I saw um, that really blew me away was Nirvana's Unplugged. I thought the way that they toned down their songs and they're playing those songs that you've heard so heavy, but stripped down and the string section and Kurt's voice completely different. It was so, so good and so mesmerising. Then when I saw that you announced you were doing an MTV Unplugged set, what was it like? Because some of the bands that have done it prior to you, bands like Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam, they're such legacies and they're such great performances. Did you feel, uh, considering we're just talking about fear now, surely going into that you must have been like, this is so intimate, this is so raw, and I can't fuck this up. Uh, yeah. You know, when I the, the, the weight of pressure on that performance was heavy. Yeah. However, the strange confidence uh, that had been bestowed on me by the producer carried me through the day. And I'll tell you why. Um, when I did MTV Unplugged, it had been off the air for a little while. And the creator, producer, Alex Coletti, uh, I think he'd, he'd been satisfied with his, his run. Um, I mean, you just mentioned, I mean, there will not be a generation that doesn't talk about Nirvana's MTV Unplugged. No. Ever. Ever. And that's, Alex Alex Coletti is responsible for that. And there's other other versions of that too. Other you know, there's I think the REM one's a classic. The Pearl Jam one's a classic. There's just it's just an incredible piece. Yeah. Of uh, of archive of a moment. Anyway, uh, when Alex Alex just came to my show, and he came back stage, and I didn't know Alex, and he said he introduced himself, and he he, he really downplayed who he was. And, when I say who he was, you know, the, 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 the position of, of power he had at that, at MTV, you know, um, he was just a really nice guy and he didn't, he really downplayed everything. I'm involved. I was involved in MTV Unplugged. I think is what he said, but he's the guy who conceived of it, produced it. He was to be all and end all, but that's just not the way he presented it, you know? just in an intentionally disarming way. Yeah. Um, but what he told me was that, uh, and this is, this is what got, this is what later made me be able to do this with confidence. He said that, um, the show he'd seen me playing just, just, just before he came up to our dressing room was what he'd hoped for from the beginning of conceiving of them to be unplugged. And that, the crowd sang along, not just in a chorus or a line, but just every single moment. And um, and he said it was the he he realized at some point that that's just it just wasn't that's something that doesn't happen. And then he came to my show. He he told me, and and he said, "Wait, this 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 does happen. It, it happens right here." And so he revived MTV Unplugged having been moved by our show. Um, and we're the first and I think only non-platinum act to ever be given an MTV Unplugged, which would then go on to, you know, go, go, go platinum and, and really change the trajectory of our job and turn it into a, a career. 
That's pretty special, isn't it, to know the legacy of bands that have done it and you're amongst them. It's a good, it's a good club to be in, and I, I wouldn't have expected to be in that club. And I, I, I still pinch myself to think that I'm amongst them. And 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 it's been, I've had a moment or two of, of that that it, that's, that. Can you imagine the surreal nature of this moment where Michael Stipe? This has happened with Michael Stipe, and it's also happened with. Eddie Vedder, where they said to me that they they love that they really loved my MTV Unplugged. It's mind blowing. Where I, you know, I sit at the altar of these men, and uh, and particularly those their their MTV Unplugged, where I thought, you know, because that was I was such a great place for reimagining songs that it really just exposed the heart of the song. That's yeah. what was so wonderful about MTV Unplugged under Alex's guidance, you know. Um, and he he was, um, the, the, of course, it's the bands that and their music that, that carry the legacy, but he's the, I, I try to make sure people know his name every time I talk to someone like you, because w- without him, there, we wouldn't have any of that, not, not any of the episodes. So here we are, as I just said, 20 years later, the band is still going strong, you're still releasing new music, you're touring. How is it that you still keep on going and you have that want and that fire in your stomach? Because so many bands now last three or four years, they don't get past their second or third album and they just break up. It's tougher than ever in the industry with stuff like Spotify and all the streaming services. No one buys records and it's hard enough to get people to leave their house and come and see a gig but you still are doing it and you're doing it again next year. I've seen your tour dates and it's, why is it you're still doing it? Why is it that I'm still doing it? Yeah. I'm in love with it. Good. Um, this is not something I, I have to do. No. This is something I get to do. When I say have to, I mean, I'm compelled to. And so in that sense, I have to do it. Um, I'm I'm compelled to go and play music for people, um, and I'm lucky that I get to do this. All I ever wanted was to do this. I can't imagine why I would stop. I, I think someday uh, something might present itself to me uh, that with some reason might present itself to me that says that's that, uh, and I. I loathe the idea that that might be so. I'm certain that I will, I'll be playing long after anybody really cares to come see me. Probably after I have, long after I have a voice left to sing with, I'll probably still be popping into an open mic somewhere. That's good. I don't know, I just, I need it. I, 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 uh, I think gone are the days where well, let me let me also say that you know the fact that records don't sell and uh, the music industry's changed. Well, that none of that really bore much weight to me in the in the first place. I just didn't expect that that was going to sell any records. All of the things that have happened in my career that, in fact, enabled me to call it a career, not a hobby they're all um, astoundingly surprising to me. <laughs> Things were not meant to 
play out this way, and yet they did. Is there still stuff on the list that you really need to accomplish? Have you ever thought of writing for other bands and directing a video or being in production of producing other bands or anything like that? Or are you in a situation where you're just happy with doing your thing and just carrying on as you are? I've done, I've dabbled. You know, I've written a, a song or two for this act or that act and yeah, written songs for friends and I've produced plenty of records to help people along. Um, but in terms of being creative in another way, you know, I, I have plenty of, I have plenty of outside of music that, that also give me the, the fulfillment that, that, that music does to a certain degree. Nothing does to the degree that music does, but you know, like taking a motorcycle engine apart or yeah. fixing my car or, I do a lot of I make make hats and wallets and 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 uh, I basically I like to work with my hands and and just kind of create something out of nothing. Um, I find that that's more attractive to me than trying to just write songs for somebody else. I already have me I can write songs for and my audience I can write songs for, um, and I guess that's. In terms of, you know, if I were to direct a music video, you know, like that, I guess I get that out of, I don't know, like I made a, I just made a jacket for my guitar player. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed th- those kinds of things, but you know, they're they're quiet things. They're not things that I'm doing out in the public eye, and that's good to have. That enables me to then go from my sewing machine to my guitar and. And, and find a whole song that I'm, I'm thrilled through. I've loved speaking to you today, Chris, and it's so good to hear you've still got the hunger that you had when you started out. So many bands I talk to just plod along now and don't have that, and to hear that you have no intention of calling it a day anytime soon is just amazing, and I'm I'm so excited to see what you're about to do next. I am too, because you, you just never can tell. I want to find out also, Mark. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'm really excited. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. It was very lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Take care, and I'll speak to you soon. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Chris from Dashboard Confessional. Honestly, one of my favourite interviews to date. What a great guy. We didn't have that long to talk, but in the short time I had him, I felt he opened up loads. He was so honest with me, and such a great talent. And to have someone like that on this podcast means the world to me, and I want to thank my good friend Hayley for making this happen. Honestly, we've been working together for a few months now and a lot of the guests that have come through have been because of her. I really do appreciate it and I can't wait for 2020 when we're going to have so much more for you guys out there and so, so many interviews. So it's going to be amazing. Everyone that checks out Mark and Me, I really appreciate it. And the best thing to do is go on to markandme.com. On there, there's my Facebook page, my Instagram page and my Twitter page. But also, if you want to drop me an email, there's a link on there. I read them all, I reply to them all and it's amazing to read the feedback. And I will forward them all on to Chris as well. So if you love the episode, tell me why and I'll share that with the world. Obviously, this podcast costs money to host and to go to places to do interviews. So that's why I've got a Patreon page. I don't make any money from the Patreon, I stick it all straight back into the podcast. It allows me to go out, conduct more interviews, which means more content, and basically everyone out there wins because they get more and more episodes of Mark and Me.
You can go on there and sign up for as little as sort of 60p a month. And for that, you're getting an episode a week. You get entered to a prize draw. There's going to be some badges coming out soon. There's going to be some T-shirts, loads of merch. And honestly, I do believe, and I'm not just saying this because it's my Patreon, you get some amazing benefits for very little. So if you can contribute, it makes a huge difference. And I really do appreciate all the support. As you know, I'll be back in a week's time with a brand new episode. And today's episode is dedicated to my good friend Martin for being such a beautiful soul and supporting this podcast and just being an amazing friend. This one's for you and all the listeners out there. I'll see you all in a week's time. Yeah.